Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive Home and Auto Policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you all for making it. We're going to be the number one media conglomerate in the world. The key here is act like a happy family. We're the Osbournes, and I'm Daddy fucking Warbucks, okay? I always wanted one of you kids to take over. People would do well to remember there's going to be a new sheriff in town. Here's to us. Hello and welcome back to Still Watching Succession, the unofficial podcast of the HBO series Succession. I'm Betty Fair, senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Danny Fair, chief critic Richard Lawson. This is our last episode where we will be discussing the ups and downs of the Roys in season two. Uh, if you are just joining us here for the finale, uh, this is a show where we break down, uh, you know, a different season of television, uh, week by week, episode by episode. This episode we are talking about, of course, the finale, season two, episode 10 called This Is Not For Tears, directed by Mark Millad, written by uh, Jesse Armstrong. And uh, we're going to do it. We're going to talk about those Roys. We're going to talk about where they landed at the end of this season. There's some surprise twists and turns in this finale episode. Um, we also have an interview with the lovely Annabelle Dexter-Jones, who plays Naomi Pierce, who sort of bore witness uh, to everything. She has some details from inside the like table read from the finale when everyone found out together how it was all going to go down. Uh, so we will, we will hear from her about that. Um, and whether or not she thinks Naomi might be back in season three. I think Naomi personally, I think Naomi would be a really good sort of like Lady Macbeth. If, if Kendall wants to go full, full Roy. We'll see. Oh, totally. We'll and see. she says, come with yeah. me. And he doesn't, but maybe he kind yeah. of does in, in a sort of more figurative sense. 
you know, by the end of the episode. Yeah, she was she was telling me that like the reason the main reason she left was not because Logan didn't want her there, but because she couldn't watch Kendall continue to be sort of castrated. That's how, Mm -hmm. that's why she felt her character was leaving. And uh, so I will say, I kind of wish we could have seen a reaction shot from her when we get the final press conference. I would have loved to see like what Naomi thought of that, but maybe to be continued, uh, for season three. Mm -hmm. Maybe those crazy kids, uh, will work it out. But, um, before we get to season three, we have to get through this episode. Um, we got a few emails still watching pod at gmail.com. But the, the main one that I want to read is actually about, uh, costume choices. And, uh, I didn't really notice until someone pointed out exactly how much brown, um, Kendall wears just like in general and especially in this season finale. I like, I remembered that his suit, uh, in the, in the Dundee episode was brown because he then wore it to the Emmys and it's this really like interesting like brown pinstripe suit mm-hmm. or whatever. But Kendall's signature color has been brown. And if you look at this at this yachting episode when everyone's dressed in like whites and stuff like that, he's just wearing a lot of brown, excessive brown. Um and uh one of our listeners, Rhiannon, wrote in and she says, um I knew something was up the second I saw Kendall in his slick suit at the end. Finally, something other than brown. It was game on, even if he kept the brown tie. Uh, so Kendall was wearing like a sharp blue suit for the final, um, press conference. So I, <clears throat> I've been trying to figure out what I think this means, uh, ever since I got Rhiannon's email last night. Um, uh, usually I feel like when you're trying to show a character in turmoil, uh, or in between two spaces, you put them in gray. Mm-hmm. So I'm just curious, like, what you think, if you have any thoughts about, like, what what Brown might mean for Kendall uh, in this season. Well, maybe it, I don't know, kind of connotes a more beaten down, sort of almost pathetic kind of thing. I think about cows being cowed, you know, by, by his father. Um, yeah. It's the color of shit. <laughs> Like, I don't know. I wouldn't <laughs> put that past this show <laughs> to be making that illusion, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So I think it's, I think it was just to kind of, well, isolate him for one, but also isolate him in a way that was almost kind of tragically indistinct, I guess. Um, the other, uh, you know, fashion choice that I noted other than like, of course, Siobhan's like everything in this yachting episode, um, was Logan is wearing a black hat and Kendall's wearing, I don't know, it's close, you know, it's, it's not a white hat. It's like a straw hat, but, uh, it made me think a lot of Westworld and like this idea of the character of William who like starts out as a white hat and winds up as a black hat. And I was just thinking of like Kendall, Kendall becoming his father by the end of the episode, Kendall becoming a black hat by the end of the episode. So that might be me reading too much into it. That might be me impatient for Westworld season three, but um, that was something that I thought about. There's a lot of good hat work uh, in this episode. When you say black hat, you mean you think that Kendall's going to become a hunky computer hacker? Um, yes. (laughs) Of the Hemsworth variety. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, 
explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterized the early years of Black Twitter to the social movements, the voices, and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th. Okay, um, so let us talk about this episode. As we usually do on this podcast, we like to rank the Roys and sort of see where they are. Usually we start at the top with who's up and end up with who's at the bottom, but we're going to flip it this week because we want to save these like, you know, these number, these alpha Roy's for the end. So we're going to, we're going to start with the the losers at the bottom of the list this week. Um, we're starting from the bottom. The, now we're here. <laughs> back at the bottom. <laughs> um, <laughs> but we're going to start with the theater kids, uh, oh, Connor yeah. and Willa. Um, mm-hmm. Something that you brought up before is sort of how accurate you thought, uh, some of the depiction around Willa's, uh, you know, fledgling theater efforts were. And one of our listeners pointed out, and I, I'm sorry, I missed it at the time that, um, Frank Rich, famed New York Times theater critic, is a producer on this show. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so he, he would have an ability to weigh, you know, just as like, they've got people who can tell them about, you know, the ins and outs of the business world. Frank Rich is like, Oh, do we want, Oh, we're doing theater. I can talk to you about theater. But I also, I I was hopeful that the little, the, there's this little dig where it's like, who cares what some white guy, the New York times thinks. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was hoping that was a little like good natured, self-referential ribbing at Frank Rich. I don't know, but um, or what do ben you think Brantley of, or of Willa? To, you know, sure. Charles is or, or, uh, Jesse Green, the fact that they, you know, <laughs> that, yeah. Uh, New York Times theater critic Yahtzee. Um, so what do you, what do you make of Connor and Willa's, uh, you know, foray into bad reviews? I, I, I liked the, the sort of comedy of her being like, okay, read me a good one. And then him sort of being like, okay, I'm going to have to scroll down a lot. Do I just do it? Or like, you know, you know, like it was just like, I think it was, it was, um, the show at its sort of m- almost most slapstick in a way. Um, but then forever cut through with what I think of, and I've said it a lot of times, like is the show, one of the show's most sharp satires, uh, in, in just like Connor's whole being. I mean, the, the sort of pathetic irony of him saying, who cares what some, you know, old white guy thinks. And it's like, you are like those quintessential older white guys. Like, yeah. <laughs> Like, yeah. you know, and, and just that, that like lack of self-awareness. Um, well also, you know, I think one thing is that for all of his, for all of Connor, the horror, sort of horror of Connor, like he is in a way good to Willa, you know, like yeah. I think he's genuinely kind to her and like cares. He, I think he really does. Yes, there's the finance thing and he does keep kind of mentioning it to her in a way to sort of hold it over her, but I think he actually cares you know, he wants the play to be successful for her, not just for him. Yeah, I mean, like, he's trying to shield her from the bad reviews. Every time I say bad reviews, I just hear it sung uh, from the Sondheim show Assassins. So um, <laughs> I apologize um, if I say reviews. I don't mean to. Um, but, you know, he's trying to shield her from that. 
reality. Um, I found it really identifiable when she threw his iPad over the side of the yacht. That was pretty great. Um, I'm curious how many iPads that actress had to go through, uh, in that, uh, scenario, but I thought it was really great. The other thing that happens in that scene is, is Connor, uh, another, like, there's some great meta, uh, Winking at the audience in a way that doesn't bug me, and I don't know why, uh, things that Succession does in this episode. Um, earlier this season, we had that great line when Kendall says, like, or no, Naomi, I think, says, like, watching you people melt down is the most satisfying thing. And Kendall goes, like, we aim to please, which is basically, like, the thesis statement of the show, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and in this episode, we have Connor being like, oh, look, they made me a meme. And it's that, like, fist pump yes moment he had from the trial. And I was like, oh, yeah, I did make, I literally made that gift myself of, uh, of him doing that. So, um, the con heads are out in force weaponizing memes, uh, in support of Connor. Um, and then, and then we find out even more emphatically, like what his dad thinks of Connor's presidential bid. Yeah. He finally just says uh, it's embarrassing. Stop. Yeah. You know, and like in a kind of way that, uh, do you think that Connor really received that? by the end of the episode, or do you think he's still going to go ahead and do it? I couldn't quite tell, I guess, in a way. I think he's going to still do it, but he's going to have to find, like, I think basically what we're going to find in season three would be my guess. Cause I just don't think the show's going to deprive us of a Connor Roy presidential bid. Maybe they will, but I just don't think they should. And so I think what maybe we'll find in season three is that he just gets a bunch of like huge donors, huge backers. Right. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? For his campaign. So, but at the same uh, time, or maybe, or maybe Ken takes care of him. I yeah. don't know. But at the same time, he, you know, when they're at the, that really chilling scene, we're at the, they're at the table trying to figure out who should go, you know? Yeah. Um, Connor makes that pathetic attempt to be like, what about me? You know, do we'll say it was, yeah. you know, Richelieu kind of like pulling the strings behind the scenes and, and like, and Logan just kind of blinks at him and is like, uh, thanks, but no, that's okay. Um, that would seem to be like a complete scuttling of any political ambition, right? If he were to go down for this thing. So like maybe in that well, moment, I think, I he was willing to do it. But in like, that moment. Yeah. Yeah. I think in that moment, but since that, that opportunity did not materialize, um, now he's just like, uh, all right, well, fuck it. You know, yeah. dad's yeah. screwed. I'm going to run for president anyway. And what I think is interesting is that Logan cares more about the embarrassment of Kendall doing that than he does the potential influence. Like we find out in this episode when he, when he's talking about getting Roman back, um, you know, from this like hostage situation in Turkey, uh, he's, uh, Logan says, I called the White House. You know what I mean? And they like sent a warship. So like he already has the president's ear, but like he would have the president's ear even more so. Right. If his son were president, uh, one would think. So yeah. I don't know. I just think it's interesting that, that, um, that he doesn't want that despite the sort of influence it, it would bring for him. Yeah. And also, like, um, in, in, are, yeah. In, in these sort of Trumpian times where people run for president just to prove something and then win, like, I, I could totally see Connor processing his father berating him and calling his whole thing embarrassing to be like, well, then he'll, he'll respect me when I win. You know, like it's almost right. a, it's a weird incentive. It's not it's not, you know, it's not uh, Logan putting any kind of uh, breaks on, on the thing, I don't think. And before we move off Willa and Connor, I do want to say that um, 
Will I guess deliver like a really choice fuck off uh to I believe it's Frank, Frank or Carl, one of them who asks her how the play is going. Mm-hmm. So, you know, mm-hmm. welcome, welcome to the family, Willa. Uh <laughs> you've you got your very own fuck off, and it was great. So there we go. Um all right, next at the list we have uh Shiv and Tom. And I told you like so confidently last week that I thought the blood sacrifice is gonna be Tom. And even though it wasn't, what we did get was exactly the sort of plot line that I was hoping for. So I was, I was wrong, but not entirely wrong in that Shiv had to make a choice, right? She had to decide if she was going to stand up for Tom or not. And, uh, we got, you know, there's like a lot of fun stuff, like with the, <clears throat> the threesome shenanigans and like, you know, Tom and Greg and all that sort of stuff. But like the, the beach scene. Whereas Shiv and Tom alone and Tom is like, we've been talking since sort of the beginning of the season, Richard, of like what would happen when Tom felt like he was pushed too far. And this is, this is the episode where Tom felt like he was pushed too far. And he's like, uh, maybe I don't need this. And then Shiv like finally seems to respect him, uh, and actually listen to him for the first time in the season. Uh, so what did you make of, of the Shiv and Tom relationship in this episode? Yeah, I mean, I don't know that I 100% saw respect, but I certainly saw her realizing that she does actually kind of care about him, you know, in in a way beyond the sort of like having a sort of, you know, a dog who can kind of run and fetch things for her or whatever, kind of like block, block things for her. Like, I think she, that she was like, Oh wait, like I really don't want to lose this, you know, from a, from a kind of purely emotional state. And then you see her kind of turn that genuine emotion into her sort of plea to her father, where she's kind of, you know, cozying up and making herself small and sort of, you know, being the sort of doting daughter again, or the, or the, the, you know, um, and, and while that was a somewhat manipulative thing, I, I, it, there was a, a truth to it. So I thought that was interesting. And I thought that Sarah Snook was like incredible. I mean, Matthew McFadden is always great. And, and so is Sarah Snook, but I just think in particular that beach scene where it's mostly her just reacting to things that Tom is saying, like, I wonder if I would be ha- like, if being if the unhappiness of not being with you would be less than the, the unhappiness of being with you or whatever the line is. Um, just yeah. her reacting to all that stuff is so well done. Yeah, I completely agree. And, um, I guess when I, when I say respect, I don't mean respect the way that like <laughs> by normal metrics. Right, I just sure. mean if she had zero respect for him, now she has 10. Like he ate Logan's chicken. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like there's, there's some defiance in Tom, some spine in Tom in this episode that we haven't seen from him all season. And so I think, um, you know, that that got her attention more than anything else. And, you know, we'll, we'll continue to talk about this, uh, as we go through the ranks, but, um, this idea of like, who, who will you protect and who will you throw under the bus? Who will you kill and who will you not in this episode is, is a big theme. And like Shiv, who's been positioned as this like true heir to Logan and the real killer in the family and stuff like that, like, here's her limit and it's Tom. Um, and it's like, I'm not surprised by that. Um, I mean, I, I, you know, I think it would have felt okay for her to go either way, but I, I wasn't like shocked that she stuck up for, stuck up for Tom because I, I feel like the show has done a good job of, of showing us, yes, he's her pet, but also like she just, she really needs that, um, external of her biological family support and, you know, thinking of losing it. 
uh, and thinking of his, you know, and she told him he could still go. It's not like, see, I saved you, so you should stay. And so that feels like a little more, even more selfless. It's mm-hmm. like, let me save you, but also if you still need to go, still, if being with me still makes you unhappy, you know, you should go. So well, where do you feel like, um, this relationship is, you know, exiting season, uh, two and headed into season three? Like, are they together at the beginning of season three? Do they have a season apart and maybe come back together? Like, do we wind up for the, wind up rooting for these crazy kids to make it work? Like, what, what do you think? Hmm. I could see them having a tense sort of separate at home, but, you know, have to be together in the course of work, um, which mm. could set up some like interesting comedy, uh, and, and drama. Um, I could also see some crazy thing like we got pregnant, you know, to like save everything, mm. you know, um, there hasn't been a really a baby on succession yet. Um, so that could be interesting, but, um, but I don't know. Yeah, I, I think that what I liked about their scenes in this episode were while there was some clear cut like statement of intent and, and feeling, I, it, that dynamic still remains very complex and, and hard to read from one moment to the next, you know, which I think is a, is a credit to the show and, and the performances, um, that, uh, that it's hard to tell where, where they're headed and which is like kind of makes them that much more human, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. So let us hop up to another couple, shall we say? Sure. Uh, in our, in our shipping fantasies old, anyway. Yeah. Good old Roman and Jer. Uh, so speaking of, of Roy kids, uh, you know, putting themselves out there to defend someone, watching Roman defend Jerry in that scene. Well, first of all, like, so that, that scene where they're all sort of, uh, once again, to reference Sondheim, no, it's your fault. No, it's your fault sort of thing that they're doing at that table. Um, first of all, it feels like a nice, uh, reference back to, um, that scene that you and I liked so much on the hunting trip when Tom and Carl and Jerry were all outside talking about like, Oh, sure, sure, sure. Yeah. It could be me right. or yeah. what if it's you? So we got like a little preview of that. And that's similarly what they were doing uh, at this table, which I love so much. Cause they're like, Oh, oh yeah, no. Yeah. I could see that, it, that it, maybe it does make sense that it's me, but does it make more sense? I'm just wondering, does it make more sense? Uh, if it's you, you know, like <laughs> it's, it's so good. And, um, and when Jerry gets thrown under the bus twice in that scene, uh, Roman sticks up for her. And I find that deeply romantic. Um, as far as I'm concerned, uh, what do you, what do you think of, of the Roman Jair, uh, dynamic here? What I thought was, you know, smart was that we in the audience who've seen behind closed doors understand some portion of why Roman does that. But also, as is often true to form with him, he's also really right. And he's seeing something and saying something that no one there, it's like, you can't fire a woman amidst this scamp, this particular scandal. Yes. Like, yeah, you can't yeah. do that. And that's why, like, it, it shows, like, that Roman sometimes has a shrewder sort of read on how the outside world perceives the family and the company. Um, and, and just how the kind of, I mean, maybe it's because he's the youngest. I don't know, but like, I don't know. Like, again, it just proves that while Roman might be an asshole and, and often a fuck up, like he does get things right a lot of the time when the moment really calls for it, you know? But I also thought it was really interesting that Logan went right to her defense. 
And he was like, no one is more loyal than Jerry. I know that he was also maybe saying that in case they were going to let, you know, the, the loyal thing for her to do would be to like take one for the team. But I thought it was interesting for him to give her that very public kind of compliment in a way. Yeah. Yeah. And, and maybe hints to that. I mean, I, it doesn't all have to be romantic or sexual, but like possibly hints to that, um, rumor that once upon a time, like Logan and Jerry had a thing, but, um, even if they didn't, that, that tracks and it's true. No one, no one is more loyal than Jerry. Uh, no one is more useful than Jerry and all that sort of stuff. To your point about Roman being, uh, shrewd in his assessment of the situation. Um, I I also like this contrast between him deciding that this Turkish money is not reliable. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 I believe he's right. You know what I mean? Like we have, we have no way of knowing <laughs> that he's right, but his take on, on this money um, and saying, no, we shouldn't take it. Like I, I bet he's right. And what's interesting is that like uh Kendall in this episode is like, Hey, Stewie's over in Greece. Should we maybe go see if we can get the money from Stewie and Stewie uses it as an excuse to be like, fuck you. Right. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. that's, that's, uh, Kendall reading a source of money incorrectly. And Roman, I think, you know, we, once again, we have no way of knowing read a money situation correctly. So once again, it's, I think what's always true of these Roy kids is like, their powers combined could create, mm-hmm. you know, the ultimate, uh, leadership. They just can't get their shit together to work together. But like Roman's instincts plus, uh, there is something that Logan does, uh, that Kendall does, uh, well. Um, I, I couldn't tell you exactly what it is, but I feel like that that's true. And there's stuff that Shiv does well. And if you put it all together, um, I feel like they could be unstoppable and that's the tragedy of their story, you know, is that they won't work together. Yeah. And I think that Roman, you know, whether or not he was right about the, the kind of shady money, um, he understands that you, and even when, you know, I think it was, was it Frank who was like praising him? He's like, no, no, he really did a great job. Like to Logan in front of Roman about, about this whole thing. And he was like, kind of, you know, begging it off. He was like, no, no, no. And then like, and then got, is that he's learned that like, if you fully tether yourself to something and then it goes awry, like you're in like huge trouble. So I think he was trying to distance himself and trying to just like, which I think it was, you know, was, was a smarter play than some of the other kids have made who like fully, you know, stand before their father, like with this big idea and then are embarrassed because of it or, you know, yell, you know, berated because of it. Whereas Roman was kind of just keeping his distance from everything and just like pushing pieces in front of his dad and then seeing what his dad did with them, but not really like assigning his name to them. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. And, and what's interesting about, um, Roman in this episode is he comes, he, he does seem like somewhat transformed by his experience last week. You know, he comes, he comes back, everyone's making these like very Roman jokes at him, uh, about it. And he's like, fuck you is actually very scary. Mm-hmm. And then later he has that moment where he's like, can we actually talk after all of this? And his siblings are like, me, me, me. Uh, which once again is very Roman, like mm-hmm. taste of his own medicine. Um, so like he definitely deserves that kind of response. Um, but it's, it was, it's interesting. It's interesting to see, to wonder, how far they might take that in season three, because like part of the joy of Kieran Culkin is like, 
how he plays this sort of, uh, jester figure so beautifully. But, you know, Kieran Culkin has enormous range. And so he could do a more serious, um, changed by this experience version of Roman next season. Would it be as fun? I don't know. But like, um, you know, the show is so smart that I feel like it does want to show us Roman's growth, uh, season to season. Mm-hmm, for sure. All right. So. Um, that brings us up the list. We're sort of doing this in pairs. You might have noticed this next pairing is not really a pairing, but we slotted them together anyway. Uh, it is Greg, who's definitely up the list from Tom and all of this, uh, and Stewie, uh, who ranks so high because of the way that he just didn't let the Roy tactics work on him at all. Um, Richard, what do you, what do you want to say about Stewie in this episode? Well, I think, you know, there's been a lot of talk this season because the show's gotten so popular and been, become such a kind of mimetic, you know, online entity, you know, with the Buzzfeed, which succession character are you? And people being like, well, we're not supposed to like these people. I mean, they're not, you know, we're not supposed to view them as fun heroes. Like they're bad. And I think that in the scene with Stewie, I don't think Stewie's great either, but like the, the way that he kind of clarified that all of their, all of the, the Roy bluster, all the, you know, threats and all that, like don't, actually matter that like yes of course they're powerful people but like the way that he just stood up to them by saying i don't care you can say whatever you want i don't i don't give a shit is is almost like the the most powerful thing that that someone in his position can say to that family and i just like the way that 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 kendall and logan kind of registered that because that was that was their bag of tricks and then it was empty and, and Stewie was still sitting before them, like, okay, like, what, 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 anything else, you know? Um, so I think that puts him pretty high this week. Be- and, and honestly, kind of this season, because, um, that's, I think the scariest thing that Logan and, and Kendall in that scene could have heard. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and, and Stewie's kind of been that all season. I was rewatching the, the premiere from, uh, this season when Stewie stands in front of Kendall and he's like, I'm a human standing in front of you. I'm your friend. You can tell me what's going on. And Kendall goes like, yeah, no, I can't. And from then on, Stewie's just been like, all right, dude, fuck you. And that's just been, um, it's a really, I just like the way that succession uses these sort of side figures to flesh out the world and make it feel, you know, bring Stewie in for like three episodes a season, but he still feels like an important enough character that the scene matters a lot, you know, um, or, or populate the yacht with your Franks and your Carls and your Carolinas. And they all, they all matter, uh, because the show's just done such a good job and the performers playing them have done such a good job, like fleshing them out. Um, before we hop over to Greg and his, t- and his, uh, potential toenail fungus, um, I do want to say that, uh, we don't have him on the list, but I want to give a shout out to Laird, um, who is uh, the Danny Houston character <laughs> who not only exited a conversation by saying, good night, sweet ladies, good night and good luck. Mm-hmm. Um, which uh should be how all of us exit a conversation but also then like there was a shot fully a shot of him just like hopping on his little like jetty or dinghy or whatever you call it and like leaving <laughs> it was just like it was such a tremendous exit uh from laird so there you go um 
All right. So, so Greg, uh, I have, I have a question about this and I had to rewatch a couple scenes at the end of the episode and I still don't have a satisfying answer, which is like the episode ends with Kendall giving his big, uh, statement at the, at this, uh, press conference. He says, I have these documents and we see them. They're Greg's documents, mm-hmm. the documents that we've been sort of tracking all season, but I'm unclear. And maybe our listeners want to write in, um, and, and tell me what you guys think. I'm unclear when Kendall and Greg decided to work together on this because there's this scene uh, on the jet when they're going to the press conference. And at that point, Greg doesn't seem to know anything about the plan. He's like, I'm really sorry. Your dad's doing this to you. Like, I think it's really awful. Or maybe he does know. But basically, at some point, there had to have been a conversation between Kendall and Greg and I don't know why there would have been, but there had to be a conversation where Greg had to be like, I have these documents. I can help you fuck over your father. Like it had to have been Greg approaching Kendall. Kendall doesn't know that Greg has these. And so I understand why they didn't show us that scene because they wanted the big surprise at the end of the episode. But at the same time, like that's a big move from Greg. And I'm sorry that we didn't get to see where that decision happened and, and mm-hmm. exactly why, you know? I mean, I could almost see Greg going into that plane bathroom, which is where we last see him. You know, he's walking in toward the, right. the bathroom, staring in the mirror. We're crouched, you know, <laughs> in that tiny bathroom, <laughs> looking in the mirror and just psyching himself up in a way and then going back out and yeah. being like, well, you know, I mean, I do like sort of have <laughs> these documents or whatever, you know, and being half um bumbling about it but then half deliberately bumbling about it you know um in the way that he is whenever he's trying to make a move um i could see him at first almost offering them as just a a kind of solace being like well you know there are these things though and then realizing oh wait that's actually a thing like that's that's a real you know uh piece of leverage um and, and then getting kind of carried away by that because i think with greg like he seems to almost like thrill to whatever powers in the room or on the plane, you know? And in that moment it was Kendall. Yeah. And so, and even though Kendall was very beaten down at that point, like, uh, like he still just wanted to, to appease and, and, and please and, and, and sort of make a, a, a sort of c- connection with, with Kendall. Cause that was a person sitting in front of him. So yeah, I, I'm sure it, you know, it would have been a really great scene um, for Nicholas Braun, you know, to see that act, that moment actually happen. But um, yeah, I understand that narratively or structurally they wanted the surprise. It's just funny because, um, and, and thank you for doing all of that because now I feel like I have seen that scene uh, with your <laughs> tremendous Greg impression, but um, the, um, it's so, it's such a vital moment because what it really, uh, you know, if you, if you think about it, which, um, I don't expect people who don't podcast the, about the show to do so. Like that, that puts the decision so much more in Greg's hands. You know, we think of this as this big moment for Kendall and it is, but like he can't really do this fully without those documents. Like his accusation of his father, like the evidence that he has are these documents. Mm-hmm. And so like, I'm not even convinced that on the plane, you know, as you say, before Greg goes into the bathroom, that Kendall knew what he was going to do. Um, 
And so, so like Greg is this inciting incident for this huge thing. And the fact that we don't see it, I'm not mad about it. Like I get it, but like it's, it's kind of major that it's missing, you know? Yeah. And I think that one thing that we might see next season, just given the way that, um, these kind of power plays are received by the characters on the show is that like, yes, it's an, it's a temporary coup for Greg in a way, but at the same time, whatever kind of becomes of Kendall's campaign to take down his father. And, you know, and Greg was useful to him in that, but like, he always is going to know Greg as the guy who snitched, who gave the documents away, who held them, you know, as kind of leverage. And, 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 and while it was beneficial perhaps to, to Kendall in that moment, um, it, it still puts a mark of distrust on Greg, you know, uh, in, in a way, which is, I guess the kind of cost of, of that sort of subterfuge. Well, we also have, I mean, there's a couple other things. We also have this like other Greg incentive because we know that his, uh, his grandpa, mm-hmm. Ewan, like wants to see, um, Logan destroyed. So if Greg can go to Ewan and be like, I helped with that. Like, do you want to write me back in the will <laughs> sort of thing? Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. th- that's a motivation he might have. And then he also like, he like Kendall. I just feel like that was such a, that, that, that table scene where they were all throwing each other under the bus was such a come to Jesus moment for so many characters, Greg included. Cause he's like me, you're going to offer me up. Like, uh, are you kidding me? So like, why should I be loyal to any of you? You know what I mean? And like, similarly, like similar in the way that it pushed Tom to be like, like, fuck you, Shiv, you know, sort of thing. So, um, and they weren't even offering yeah. him up in a way that made him seem powerful. They were right. just like, hey, he's sprinkles. just like another, yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's just like, eh, whatever, you know, which is like extra galling, I would, I would imagine to hear. Before we move off Nick Braun, um, the dream machine, I, we of course have to shout out his tremendous performance at the beginning of the episode, which is his, uh, his testimony before Congress, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh, which is some of the best comedy I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> uh his like overly mannered uh, uh you know addressing the the congress is just a beautiful thing so yeah i mean it's just like it's like stilted speech that's written so well you know yeah like you I, i'm sure that it was like very much on the paper in that sort of cadence and and you know sort of stammering uh formality uh yeah it was it was really really well done uh, all right. So that, uh, brings us to our top two Roy's. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, we're, we were just like very unsure <laughs> where to put these two characters. Does Kendall belong up here at the top? Does he belong actually on the bottom? Uh, it's, it's uncertain because yes, he is the victor, uh, in, in the short term, but like he has to, become his father in order to do that. And is that really what we want for Ken? Uh, this like reminds me of when sense of like fed Ramsey to the dogs and people are like, yeah. And I'm like, is that yeah. something we want to mm-hmm. root for? Um, you know, some people are like, fuck yeah, Ken. But I'm like, well, but like there's so many moments in this season where it feels like he almost got out, you know, like reaching to his mom or reaching for the hug from Shiv or like this last offer of you can leave from Naomi. And he's like, no, I'm going to stay. And in staying like has, I don't know how concretely we'll find out in season three, but has transformed into his father, which is exactly what his father wanted really. Um, and that's 
it's also it's sad. So yeah. I don't know. Uh, like, well, we had what, that. What mo- are your? What are your? Yeah, he had also had that moment in the family's house when when his dad was talking to the parents of the guy that he killed accidentally where you were like okay here's a real moment you know kind of similar to stewie saying i'm a human being standing in front of you like what's up you know um he had i think the the escape for him is to be the human like the person that he is clearly capable of in a way i don't think shiv is um in a way that roman doesn't want to be maybe well maybe he does now that he's been through a scary thing connor is you know whatever but like i think kendall in a way, I think that's why he's kind of the first among equals in this ensemble cast, he, because there, there's a, there's a chance that he could redeem himself somehow. You know, um, he tried to do something genuinely, um, thoughtful in a way by, you know, saying, well, this is how we improve Walter. Like, well, we can keep, everyone can keep their jobs, whatever. And, you know, and then in the end, he didn't, you know, so it, it I think this was kind of maybe the final, either nail in the coffin, but also maybe part of the the path through. Because the thing about him at the end of this episode, it's a victory, yes, but it's also exposing himself to the, the risk that his father could do something about this dead kid. Even though he says, oh, no real person involved, whatever. And Logan is now attached to it because he's gone and spoken to the family. So maybe that sort of you know, time bomb is less of a time bomb now, but it's still like, he still knows his dad knows that. And so he's, it's, there's almost a sense of kamikaze mission about that thing at the end. Yeah. Like a Peric sort of victory. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, um, it's interesting because a, a time bomb that some of our listeners have reminded me of is the fact that Marsha, who, you know, is gone. Maybe they're divorced. I mean, you know, like Logan doesn't seem to know what's going on with Marsha exactly. He seems to expect that maybe she'll show up and she doesn't, et cetera. But, um, her son is the one who like delivered the key card back. You know, her son was there at the wedding, Marsha's son, mm. who we like haven't seen at all this season, but he was like the one who delivered the key card like he's knows what happened marcia knows what happened so like and if logan has made an enemy of marcia that you know uh, we should be worried maybe about how logan would have his revenge on kendall though honestly he looked very proud of kendall to me but like but also marcia like marcia to hurt logan would she hurt kendall like that's that's a question i have yeah and marcia's um, presence was you know. felt in this episode in particular because logan said i miss her you see that shot of him waking up in bed instinctively turning and then she's, there's no one there. Um, right. And then in, in a more comedic way, everyone kept referencing the alterations that Marsha had made to the interior of this mega yacht, you know, which it was yeah. funny to be like, okay, so that's, there's something she really cared about. You know, she, Marsha, Marsha was really invested in this yacht and she really wanted it to look it- a certain way. And it made sense because what she's what European or Middle Eastern. I, what, I, don't, I don't, I forget what nationality she's supposed to be. Um, right. But like, I don't, I mean, like, I, I am lucky enough to go to the Cannes Film Festival every year and like, you want to see yachts? There's a, those are some yachts. Like, Europeans or people who, you know, exist along the Mediterranean love a yacht. And it just made a lot of sense to me that that's the thing that Marsha wanted to put her stamp on. So Marsha's first husband was Lebanese. Uh, and. I don't know. And then, yeah, there was, I, oh yeah, I remember this. In season one, 
I forget which Roy kid was doing, maybe Shiv, I don't know, was doing background on Marsha. Like did a background check on Marsha and it was like very shady. Mm-hmm. Like they didn't know sort of what her background was. They couldn't quite pin it down. So, but yeah, uh, the, the Marsha refit is what they called the, the refit of the yacht. It reminded me a lot of like Melania, like redoing the White House or whatever. And it was like, I don't know. There was this like weird gaudy Christmas tree in the foyer. I don't know. It was, it was very interesting. But yeah, um, uh, our interviewee, Annabelle Dexter Jones, also talked about that yacht and how the size of that particular yacht, which is, I think it's, it's technically a super yacht. Um, kind of changed her mind about yachts. She was like, I thought I wasn't a yacht person. And then I got on that boat and I was like, Oh, okay. Um, anyway, um, so, uh, Logan and Kendall. Okay. So you mentioned this idea of, uh, no real person, uh, involved, right? Which is something that has cropped up. We've talked about throughout the season. Um, so I want to get like real lit major with you and talk about the title of this episode, uh, which is called This Is Not For Tears, which is from a John Berryman poem, uh, Dream Song 29. It's a line from that poem. And that poem is about a man, uh, wrestling with some sort of un, unnamed guilt, excessive guilt, um, that he just can't sleep. Uh, he cries all the time. Um, you know, he's, he's self-reproachful, stuff like that. Um, and then the line is, um, ghastly with open eyes, he attends blind. All the bells say too late. This is not for tears thinking. Um, and then the last stanza is about this narrator of this poem saying, um, wait, no, I didn't actually kill anyone. Uh, and then he says, um, uh, he knows he went over everyone and nobody's missing. Often he reckons in the dawn them up, nobody is ever missing. And so like this narrator sort of being like, I have this massive guilt, but I haven't actually done anything wrong. And so I need to move beyond this guilt to this is not for tears. Like I, there's, there's, there's a space beyond self-pity and that's what I'm sort of moving on to. That's the common interpretation of this poem, uh, which I know sounds a little dense for like a Monday morning podcast, uh, situation, not for you, Richard, but I don't know. I always feel like I have to apologize if I try to use my degree, but, um, I, I just think that, um, what what the what the line from this poem what the use of this poem is trying to say is that like ken is moving on past this fugue state that we've seen him in all season and i it, i almost feel like it's him finally absorbing his dad's words when he says cuz cuz ken's like it's right that i should go down for this the boy you know what i mean like he's like it's right that i should be thrown under the bus because mm-hmm. of what i did to that boy and then logan's like no no real person involved that that wasn't a real person. This isn't about that. Don't worry about that. And then I feel like by the end of the episode, by the very end of the episode, Ken's like has convinced himself that that's right. In these ways in which he's becoming his father, he's like, yes, I can stop feeling like I need to self-flagellate. And instead I can wake up and make my own power moves. Yeah. Um, which, that's my interpretation anyway. Totally. Yeah. No, I think that's totally right. And I think, also, you know, going back to the idea that, you know, maybe in, in, in our, or I won't speak for myself anyway, like <clears throat> my, my love for this show sort of clouded me to how awful these people are. But then in this, I think this episode clarifies how awful they are in multiple uh, occasions throughout the hour. Um, but this one in particular where you're like, Oh wait, his big like 
catharsis is not like accepting response it's like realizing that it wasn't a real person (laughs) yeah like that's his like oh my god i'm free what a what a burden is lifted you know it is the most hideous kind of calculus that these people do um and him just sort of embracing it and i thought that was you know um this is this is this this show is beyond the anti-hero you know these are just just antis there is no hero involved yeah, and it, this final moment is so complicated because you're like, okay, he's betrayed his father, but then do we really want to think of it as a betrayal? Because, like, of course, his father is a malignant force mm-hmm. and deserves to go down. Um, so is what he's doing morally right here? But then you're like, but also it's not because it's not like he's doing this out of any sense of like moral purism. You know what I mean? Despite the fact that like, Kendall has uh, shown himself time and again this season to be the Roy kid, maybe most capable of moral, like of morality. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking specifically of the Argestes episode when they're discussing the article and Shiv's like, yeah, we've got our strategy and our response. And Kendall's like, yeah, but the women, like, can we talk about the actual, like, people? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, which just circles back to our point, which, like, if he's absorbed this lesson, this lesson that Shiv already knew, which is no real person involved, um, you know, then, then we should feel sad for Kendall in this victory. Yeah. We should feel, always feel sad and chilled when Logan looks at one of his children with pride <laughs> because then they are truly lost yeah. sort of thing. So, um. Well, also like, you yeah. know, if you think back to the first season, yes, he was trying to take down his father then, but it was more out of a, you know, thinking his father was old and out of it and had had a stroke and, you know, um, and, and then, but all, but, always baked into logan's uh or excuse me into kendall's ethos and we certainly see that in the episode uh where who says it oh you that woman's like you keep talking about your dad you know um, oh jennifer yeah yeah, yeah you yeah, know yeah. and and i think that the, the the tragedy of him has been that like he's obsessed with his family. He's obsessed with this family company and is so close to it and so invested in it that he can't see it for what it is. And then when he wants that, he thinks the company can do the right thing or the, the positive thing, the non nihilist thing. It, yeah. it, 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 it's proven wrong over and over and over again, that that's actually not how this machine functions. And I think that this episode, even though he comes to that conclusion from a, via very like dehumanizing means, in terms of this kid that he got killed uh, by accident, uh, he at least realizes, oh, wait, there is no good trajectory for this company. The arc of its, you know, moral whatever, like, does not bend toward justice. It, it It is bad. It is poisoned. And, like, he's not trying to take over the company. He's just trying to undo it now. And I think that that's a really interesting shift in terms of how he perceives himself and his family's position um, in the world. Yeah. Um. Emily uh, Vanderhoof, who who writes for Vox, wrote this uh, great piece um, last month called The Rise of Succession, TV's New Must Watch Show, which the title doesn't really give you a sense of what the article is about, which is like her trying to grapple with like why succession has been such a hit. Is it is it just that we love these like rich people behaving badly? Like, what is it? And uh, she drills down on this notion that... um, it's not just a show about like, you know, rich people behaving badly or, or corporate greed or whatever it is. It's, it's about, and we've talked about this a bit, but like, it's about abuse. It's about denial of abuse. It's about living with abuse. You know, like these, these 
four children. Um, the most obvious example being Roman, but these children have been abused and warped and continue to be warped by their father. And so is, is this a show about, um, the way the older generation has, I mean, if you want to, if you want to put it in the like, uh, you know, millennials versus boomers animosity court, or if you just want to put it in a more personal court, like, you know, the way in which we all sort of are living with abuses that are heaped on us, maybe it's by our, may our current president, like who knows, like, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of, you know, places you can slot this concept into, but just, just this idea of like, and, and why Ken is such a compelling figure, why Jeremy Strong's performance with his like sad eyes and slumped shoulders is so compelling. Um, and, and why this final moment is so strong because it's both like a shaking off of his father's control and a complete submission to his father's control at the same time, a complete loss mm-hmm. of whatever it was about himself that was possibly human, possibly moral. Um, I, maybe not a permanent loss, but a loss in this moment, you know? Yeah. And I, I think that's absolutely right. And I also think that, you know, if you want to look at this, the way this season ended or the way that, the way this season really functioned for Kendall throughout coming in, you know, the fall of 2019, a year before a, a president, a major presidential election. I think that you could read it as a kind of call to, you know, shaking awake a certain Democrat politicians who are running for office, who still sort of speak of the system in favorable ways, who still think that America can, is is inherently good and and just and like whatever and and without sort of acknowledging its many original sins and then kind of having this sort of startling moment it's like no i have to actually just like i i realize now that this is a a broken thing and it's always been broken and maybe we just need to completely radically realign this whole thing which is essentially what kendall i guess is starting to do at the end of the episode um so i don't know maybe there's a little bit in there of jesse armstrong like shaking Pete Buttigieg by the shoulders and saying, wake up like this. You you can't work within this broken, <laughs> corrupt thing mm, and have and, yeah. and, and, and expect different results. You know, that is that's not that's not how it's going to work. It needs there needs to be more, frankly, of a I'm not saying not, not like a physically violent revolution, but like more of an ideological revolution um, in yeah. order to see this clearly and, and do something about it. I love that. Um, the last thing I'll say, you know, in encouraging our listeners to maybe look at this Berryman poem is that the last line, which is nobody is ever missing, uh, is the name of the season one finale. So this is obviously, this is like a subject that the creators of the show are intensely preoccupied with, which is, um, how the upper echelon of society views us and who's a real person and what matters. And is that how, is that how this whole broken system functions to your point, this broken system, it operates on this, this deep level of apathy for anyone who isn't us and ours, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I'll be really curious to see how they keep exploring that theme going forward. They're certainly not done with it. Um, and, yeah. And tribe, tribalism is something they're so interested in. And, and you see that in this episode in terms of like the Jerry Roman stuff or the, the Shiv Tom stuff. Like who's your tribe? 
when when do you make new little tribes for yourself um that sort of stuff so i don't know i'm i i loved this finale i love this move like a lot of people were predicting i thought it was going to be tom a lot of people were predicting ken but i don't think anyone predicted that it would be like ken and then ken would throw logan under the bus yeah so yeah that's a very intriguing what's i mean like i don't think season three is logan goes to jail honestly because he's too rich and powerful to go to jail but is it logan goes to war with ken i mean the thing is is like logan the the question of a successor is logan is just wanted to be replaced by himself Mm -hmm. and he's just been certain that none of his kids were up for the job and this is the you know shiv was seemed the closest but she she proved herself i don't want to say it's weak but in his eyes weak by going to bat for tom but here's ken he went straight for the jugular and that's logan finally seeing himself and one of his kids really and uh, it made a nice bookend with the season opener which you know of course had kendall going on tv and defending his father and logan watching and this ends with you know kendall Mm -hmm. going on tv and uh massacring his father and uh I'm 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 just I'm so excited to see where we, where we go next. What a great show, Richard! What a great show! I I think I I'm, I would be surprised if they repeat the format next season, uh, and if they don't, I'm really going to miss this season. Like that, every episode was a different event or location. I thought that was such a fun device, yeah. and to cap that off with the, this Mediterranean, you know, super yacht cruise. Um, <laughs> the yacht well, so giving us a little of the kind of, you know, wealth porn that is oh, yes, sure. part of the feel of the show. Yeah, um, of course. You know, while also having terrible things happen within that. Um, I, yeah, I, I just think this has been such a great, entertaining at times a little bit soapy, sure, but it's TV, it's allowed to be, but also very, very sharp and really damning uh critique of a lot of things um yeah what a great show yeah it's interesting that um i learned something very important about yachts which is that you don't wear shoes oh no on a teak deck no 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 there's always a little sails out sails out nails out mm-hmm. i've li- i've literally never stepped foot on a yacht so i don't know um so this is this is me learning learning yacht things. <laughs> Hashtag yacht things. That's going to be our podcast next next season. Hashtag yacht today. Yacht things. Now is the perfect time to go to our interview with the lovely Annabelle Dexter Jones, who plays Naomi Pierce. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for chatting with me. My pleasure. I wanted to start by asking you. I've talked to a couple performers this season, and all of them had these really intricate, invented backstory so i was curious if you had one for naomi i do i came up with an entire like using history for her yeah of like all of her drug use yeah and um her various accidents and incidents various schools that she got kicked out of boarding schools something that uh i know a couple people have have asked me about is um, we don't know exactly how Naomi and the character Tabitha know each other, right? Is there is there an official story for that, or do you have a story for that? Um, we knew each other from the New York City private school circuit, and um, you know, we just kind of like ran in the same crowd and partied together. Were you a fan of Succession before you were cast on the show? Yes, I was a big fan. Discovered it a little late. I, I discovered it in. November, December, I was kind of bummed because like, I felt like there weren't, I didn't have a lot of people to talk to about it. Um, 
not a lot of people I knew were watching it. Yeah, I was a big fan of the show. And then all of a sudden this summer, it kind of became this like, thing that everyone um, got super excited about. Well, I like a very zeitgeisty yeah. kind of show. Given that you were already a fan, like what was your audition process like? What was it like when you heard that you, know, that you might be a fit for a role in the show? I had to do the chemistry test at a, because um, they were shooting. The director, they were already like, they were shooting, I think, episode four or something. Mm -hmm. And they were doing like exterior helicopters. So I went to a heliport (laughs) on the FDR. Uh (laughs) Met, um, went into some like weird room in the heliport. (laughs) Um, with the casting director and the director and Jeremy. And, um, and did the did the damn thing, and you know, what is that like as a perf- behold? What is that like as a performer to have to do a chemistry read w- with an actor playing a character that you're already familiar with? Like you have a bead on Kendall already. So, what does that do to your mindset in terms of prepping for that kind of chemistry read? Well, I think it's actually quite helpful because, like being being so familiar with the show. And, um, I also, you know, I really liked what Jeremy did, um, on season one and season two. Um, and so it, you know, it really gave me, I like had like a pretty strong sense of like the tone. Yeah. Um, so I felt like it was, it was very helpful. Um, but it was also like kind of nerve wracking because, you know, you're like, I mean, you're, you know, you're meeting this person and you feel like you know intimately, but you actually don't at all. <laughs> um, and, and yeah, but that was really weird. Like once I got the part and I started work, um, like stepping into your favorite television show is deeply disturbing, like in the best way possible. Right. Yeah. But yeah, it was very confusing when like, I'm like, why? Why does Tom have an English accent? It's so weird. <laughs> well, so you you got to because you got to be part of the that great Turnhaven episode. You got to shoot with almost everyone, like all in one place together. There um, was there anyone in the cast who I don't know surprised you other than other than Matthew's uh, accent? Is there anyone who you were like, wow, you are not at all at, like I thought you would be, or is there anyone who you were like, you're exactly, exactly how I envisioned you would be to work with? Right. Well, I mean, well, Matthew, too, I did know that Matthew, because I know Mr. Darcy, you sure. know what I mean? Of but yeah. he's so, but he's, he trans, like that character, Tom is so strong to me that you just like forget everything else. Yeah. Um, I love his portrayal of that character. It's like something I've never seen before. Um, but in terms of, I mean, like Brian Cox is just like the loveliest man. Right. Um, he just, he's like this teddy bear. I don't know. He just like, you know, and he kind of regales you with like these, he has all of these incredible stories and he's so warm and, um, and lovely and friendly. Uh, and I was very intimidated, um, but he made me feel so comfortable. Like, especially when, because I, I don't think I even really got the script till the day before we started shooting. Oh, wow. Um, and so I think I read it for the first time at the table read. 
And I didn't know, like, I saw the Shakespeare soliloquy. And I was like, oh, God, I have to do this tomorrow in front of Brian Paul. Cherry <laughs> Joe. Uh, <laughs> Holly Hunter. Yeah. yeah. So that was, like, pretty terrifying. And there was even, like, one point where I, like, I think I kept... You know, once you, like, say something so many times, it can kind of start to turn into gobbledygook. And, like, I feel like that was happening at one point. And he was, like, he was, like, just take your time, you know, take all the time that you need. Aww. And um, so it was, like, it was, a, it's a very, um, it it was, I was extremely intimidated and terrified, like, going into that um environment but as soon as I stepped into it like that was all anticipatory um it's like such a it's such a wonderful um energy on set and the cast and the writers and the directors um are not only so talented but like they're actually people who you really want to spend time with so it's kind of a dream um, like I was kind of like pinching myself every five minutes. I'm given to understand that it's a very improv friendly, um, set that you do multiple takes and there's, um, you know, different, different interpretations flying around, which can, uh, result in, uh, a finished product that you have no idea what it's going to look like because you took a scene so many different ways or, and so, so I'm curious if in watching the show, if there's been an edit choice that, surprised you or excited you so i guess like the surprise is always like wait where's that scene yeah yeah <laughs> um but you know then there's other characters um who you get to see like it's really fun to watch like tom and uh greg improv or jerry and greg or tom you know like there's um because they're you know their characters are just like hysterical and they have like such an incredible dynamic. Um, so yeah, that's just pure comedy. What are some of the Naomi scenes that didn't make it into the final cut? There were just some like, you know, just some like Naomi Kendall scenes, Mm -hmm. um, which just aren't like, you know, I mean, you can, you can convey something in a glance, um, or a word. So, but you know, it, it, uh, it isn't the Naomi Pierce show. <laughs> I know I, I forget that sometimes. I'm like, this is weird. Um, no, but, uh, but yeah, so basically, um, it's just like kind of, you know, more scenes between, um, Kendall and I. Like, uh, like in the London episode or the DC episode? Yeah. Exactly. Uh, so, so let's start, let's start though with this DC episode. It ends with this question of like a blood sacrifice. I remember at the table read for episode nine, everyone was like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, um, but, and I think, I don't know when I got the, I don't know when I got the script for episode 10. I think I had like, I had a feeling, I mean, I had, I had a feeling I was going to, I kind of, there were hints and suggestions that I was going to be in 10, um, but I definitely didn't know for sure. And, you know, there, you know, they can change things up until days before. So um, I think it was like the, the afternoon, I think it was like July 4th weekend or something. And, 
And the afternoon before they were like, Hey, can you come in for the table read tomorrow morning? And I was like, yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, I was definitely surprised. It feels right. The way that um, the season ends. Something that I love about succession is the number of uh, brilliant right, uh, women in the writer's room, all these like great playwrights and, and women from different backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that something that, that I think I feel like it adds a lot of dimension to the female characters um, that you don't always get uh, in a prestige drama or in a, out of a writer's room that's like all men. Uh, is that something that you've noticed a difference um, as a result of that? Or is that not something that is like registered for you? You know, yeah, I mean, like, especially in, you know, season two, um, there are um, also, like, a lot of different kinds of women portrayed. Um, I mean, I like, Will is one of my favorite characters. Yes, <laughs> me too. <laughs> um, I just, like, I really want to see Sam. Yeah, me too. The play. Just don't sit too close. Don't sit too close. You'll get fleas or whatever. But, you know, Um, what was the mood like in during the table read for episode 10 when everyone sort of knows how it's all going to end? What was the mood like in that in that table read in that room? It was very intense. Do you feel like Naomi and Kendall are good for each other? Like is, you know, when when you see two addicts sort of not to reduce them to that. Obviously they're more complex than that, but when you see people with addictive tendencies sort of clinging to each other, like I I like them together (laughs) and I kind of want, I want them to be together, but then I don't know if they're actually good for each other. Like, do you have any opinions on that? Yeah. Well, I try not to like judge them in that way. Like just because like, obviously, you know, I, I like, I never judge my character. Um, but I do, I do believe that they're both, I think that for whatever um, issues they might have or kind of like maybe codependent tendencies or they're, you know, they're addicts and maybe they're selfish people. But um, I think that at the same time, they're both on kind of like a path. With your understanding of Naomi's character, how do you feel like she would react to this final, this press conference? Like seeing Kendall not be castrated, but see him sort of go after his father in this way. Um, how do you, do you, is this something that she would think is positive for Ken or would she worry about him in a new way? Or how do you, how do you feel like, I mean, I understand that the writers write the character, but how do you as an actress feel like your character would react to that? <laughs> Um, I mean, I, you know, I, I think that she would probably smile to herself, but I also think that like, you know, the way in which he does it is like, is, you know, I mean, it, I, I can't, I, the reason, I guess I can't say because I don't know yet, like where, what Kendall's headspace is. You know, because, like, it could go both ways. Like, he could kind of, like, stand up against his father and be better, or he could stand up against his father and become his father. Right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think that we're all, like, of our parents, and, and they are 
of course, you know, they're a part of us. So that's inevitable. But I mean, you know, who knows? Maybe he goes full tilt. Let's go back to that table read. Like what, what were some of the reactions <laughs> to this, to this uh, turn of events uh, in the table read? I don't, everyone seemed really satisfied with it, especially Jeremy. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, he doesn't have to play a zombie anymore. He's like, zombie season is over. Right. <laughs> well, thank you for the chat. I really appreciate it. And thank you for your great work on the show, on this show that I love as much as you seem to love. And uh, I hope we see <laughs> Naomi in season three. <gasps> Me too. <laughs> she would, she'd make a really good Lady Macbeth. You know what I mean? Like if Kendall's got to go, got to break bad or whatever, like I think, I think he could use a little Naomi in his life in that way. Yeah, I think so too. um all right so uh richard what are we doing next now that we're done with the roys uh well we're doing things a little bit differently aren't we Mm -hmm, we are yeah. Uh, we're sticking with HBO because they pay us $3 million each per episode, uh, that we cover. <laughs> At least I think they do, right? I haven't been getting the checks yet, but I think, I think they're coming. Oh, no, they're in the mail. They're okay, all in great. The mail. Yeah. Okay. Well, no, I mean, we're, we're sticking with HBO because HBO is having a really interesting fall coming up or, you know, second yeah. half of the fall. Um, in that they have two huge new potentially like post Game of Thrones savior shows, uh, in the form of Watchmen and then a little bit later, uh, and a series adaptation of his dark materials, the uh, Philip Pullman books that were turned into a movie, the golden compass that didn't really go anywhere. Um, so yeah, those are two big shows and we felt like we wanted to talk about both, at least in some capacity. So we'll be touching on those. We'll also be covering a bit of the crown season three. It's a busy, busy fall winter guys. So the crown is coming out and that's very VF show. How could we ignore it? So we will be, you know, paying homage, kissing the ring, uh, as Queen Olivia, Olivia Coleman takes the throne, uh, on the crown. And then also, uh, we're going to be doing some coverage of a new streaming service show. Um, Disney Plus is The Mandalorian. So keep subscribed for some Watchmen stuff, some His Dark Material stuff, some The Crown stuff, some Mandalorian stuff. Basically, uh, we're trying to keep up with Peak TV. We're doing our best. So we'll see what happens. But, uh, we will definitely be back next week talking about Watchmen. So that, that you, that is a guarantee. So, uh, Richard, until then, where can people find you? No, probably just on my yacht. I think I just, I just <laughs> need a little break. Um, but maybe if I have cell service, I'll be tweeting at Rylaws and writing for BF.com. Uh, Joanna, where will you be until we, uh, move on to the next show? I mean, I think crouching in that airplane bathroom with greg that was a weird one i don't know how i feel about that one uh, but i've definitely been known to crouch uh in an airplane bathroom so um uh yeah or you can find me on twitter at i wrote this or you can find me at vanityfair.com and we'll see you uh tick 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 next week We've all been there before. You're planning a dinner party or having family over or even just cooking for yourself when all of a sudden it starts to feel overwhelming. Uh, I live in a very small one-bedroom apartment with a very small kitchen. I can't figure out what to serve besides water soup at this point. I'm Chris Morocco, food director of Bon Appetit and Epicurious, and this 
is Dinner SOS, a new podcast from Bon Appetit. Maybe it's a last-minute party with no menu inspiration, a kitchen with no space, a toddler who will eat buttered pasta. Name your dinner emergency. We're here to help. Here's how the show works. On each episode, we'll take a call from a home cook facing a real dinner emergency. Then, I'll work with one of our editors or someone from our amazing test kitchen to try and solve it. Because cooking for the people you love should inspire joy without a side of stress. Make sure you're following Dinner SOS wherever you're listening now. 